Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm here with a special guest today, Anthony Palladino, who started his career as a sales rep at Evolve Software and then Mercury Interactive which was acquired by HP. After HP, Anthony joined Blade Logic, which was eventually acquired by BMC Software, where Anthony was a regional director for three years. After BMC, Anthony had a great five-year run at Splunk, where he was VP of the Americas. Then he moved to CloudBees as the VP of worldwide sales for three years before moving to Isara as the chief revenue officer. Today, Anthony Palladino is the Chief Revenue Officer at Mabel, M-A-B-L, which is an exciting startup company in Boston, gaining tremendous traction with customers. Welcome, Anthony. Good to see you. How are you? Nice, yeah. to, uh, nice to be with you here today. Hey, Anthony, give us a little overview of what Mabel does. Yeah, Mabel is in uh, low-code low test automation. So we're taking a process that typically takes X number of hours across Y people and automating that down into take a fraction of the people and a fraction of the time. And uh, we're using a bunch of different types of AI, uh, language, le large learning models there, um, machine learning, and having a great time. We're a couple hundred customers, Series C, and uh, we're having a lot of fun. So Anthony, as a new CRO, you're walking in, certainly not your first rodeo, what are the three to five things you're looking to learn on day one? Yeah, so when I think about the go-to-market kind of function and looking at the business, first I'm trying to figure out where, um, where are the blind spots? You know, what is the company not aware of? And you can figure those things out, number one, by uh, looking at gross dollar retention, looking at net dollar retention, looking at expansion, cross-sell, upsell. So if you have something where the technology is being used, <clears throat> and you're seeing that people are renewing it in a good way, regardless of what habits the customer success team have, you have something to work with there because the product is either unique and or high value and or the team is doing a good job on it. So that's the first thing to look at is where are the weak spots. Um, I think the other thing to think about is the context and the temporal nature of the environment. So how are they doing against the competitors? How are they doing uh, by... Uh, bringing new people in and selling to this market. And as we know, the market has changed tremendously in the past couple of years. So, um, you know, from context and this time, how are they doing? You know, and the, the big thing I always focus on, the third area is based on those two things, deconstructing the subconscious conclusions that the customers are making, prospects are making. So that includes from the first touch point when they hit a lead, to uh, saying, hey, I want to engage or saying, hey, I want to uh, look at some pricing or do a demo. What's happened before that process? And then once the sales, once the sales process kicks off, 
how long is that time? Is it a 90 day? Is it 120 day? Is it 30 days? And what are the habits? What are the, what are the practices? What are the, what are the common denominators that, that you're seeing in customers who are being super successful? And then my take on this is really understanding that, diagnosing it, reverse engineering it, and building a process. So for me, whenever I go to a shop, I will build a new process. It's always champion-based selling, John, as we know. Um, but I redefine that process based on the, the market, based on the time, and based on the product. So um, those are, you know, once you, once you understand what's happening in the customer buying cycle, and you notice I use the word buying cycle, not just sales process, then you redefine what your sales process can be to just help the customer draw the right conclusions uh, along the way. And what is some of the, you know, common, like I said, this isn't your first rodeo. So what are some of the common areas that people are not doing? I think one of the things that I really dig in on is um, looking at, uh, looking at the little things. And I try to make the little things big and the big things little. So for example, you walk into a shop, they, maybe they're a productive team. Maybe they're not a productive team. For me, I define productivity model as 50% of the ramp team overachieving each quarter and 65% of the ramp team doing 65% or better. Okay. You don't have a productivity model getting along with the team and saying, okay, we're going to, you guys need to drive here. You know, John, the expression we used years ago is yelling at the scoreboard. Look at the score. You guys aren't doing this. You want to do well. People don't want to not overachieve. They want to be in a position to make money. So, it's looking at what things are not happening along that process that enables the business to go well. So, and I think at the little things and making them big and then the big things are, you know, people didn't hit their quota. They don't want to not hit their quota. It's being able to diagnose and deconstruct what they're not doing along the way. So Anthony, what I hear you saying is that it's really about maintaining discipline in the things that you do, especially in the sales process. So, it's discipline around the little things that can make a big difference in execution of things. So sure. can you give me a little example of that? Is something like maybe even pipeline generation or something? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure, John. And, and you know, one of the things that we're focused on, we have been focused on and we built the habit around it now, we're continuing to build it out, is pipeline generation, as you said. So, um, and we have a metric for pipeline generation. It's two new meetings, created two new opportunities created per person per week. And it's easy to say that, but how do you go and get a customer to, to take a meeting? Okay, great. You prospect, you call. Okay. You email, fine. LinkedIn, great. But today the world is different in that you're not going to get a reply versus the second on your second or third try. You have to think about a sequence and the sequence is not just, okay, team, create a sequence. What we did is we took it to another level and we created uh, a sequence where we had, we actually, as a backdrop, we had done some analysis and we were identifying that customers were engaging on about the 11th to the 14th touch point, literally wow. the 11th to the 14th between calls, emails, and LinkedIn. So a couple of QBRs ago, we said, hey, let's work on creating a way that we can help people to have a sequence and drive. And the sequence, by the way, is not just put it in outreach and let it go. Don't, don't, I would lose more hair if people tell me I've got my sequence in outreach and it's just running. That doesn't work. Right. You can use outreach and outreach is great for managing a process and keeping a track on that, tracking touch points. You can use outreach anywhere, but using that solely and exclusively as you're prospecting 
method is not a great idea because it smells like outreach and people can see that. So what do we do? We created this concept of a 21 double down sequence. So the idea with that is that we've got 21 touch points, literally 21 over the course of 21 days. So we created the methodology for it. We created the, the call, the follow-up, the phone call, the email, the follow-up, and we've got two different email components going in there. But each of those email pieces of content are not um, just so standing on their own. It's a piece of email. It's a re-reply with another con piece of content. Uh, we're varying the call to action. We're varying the copy itself. We're varying whether there even is a call to action. Obviously, you have different subject lines. Then you've got a thing on LinkedIn and the LinkedIn may be just a blank invitation or it might be an invitation with some comments. And then once we have someone engaged, we're leveraging it to show personality. So, you know, we, we created something that is not just drive your pipeline. It's not just go prospect. It's not just go call. It's here's a methodology. Here's a sequence. Here's a process. We actually did in our QBR working session, we said, okay, here's the methodology. We went through it as a team. We broke into a couple separate groups. Over an hour and a half, we came up with four different sets of 21 double-down sequences. And are they perfect? No, they're not perfect, but are they good? Are they usable? Of course. And now what we do on the little thing on that is we're tracking where and how a customer will engage. Did they reply on the first call? If so, beautiful. What did we say? Did they reply on the second call, third call, whatever the case might be? Did they reply? They didn't reply on the call. They didn't reply on an email, but they replied on LinkedIn referred back. So it's not just prospect. It's not just generate two new opportunities. It's the little thing of what is in that sequence. How are you, how are you going out to that customer? And sometimes it's traditional research the company, understand what's going on in their business, talk about how you can affect revenue, risk, uh, profitability, compliance, whatever the case might be. But other times it's one piece of content that you're using. Because if you're reaching out to these people so frequently, you can't reply with one piece of content, just, did you see my note? Did you see my note? That we both know that gets deleted in 12 seconds. So you have, that's an example where going really into the little thing that makes a big difference. And if you focus on that habit and you're at a two, two, two opportunities created per person per week, that's going to give you a lot to work with. And even in our case, we look at stage zero opportunities, not just qualified pipeline, but stage zero is when a meeting is set up. And when a meeting is set up, I can get fidelity from that. We've actually focused on stage zero. We do a 90-day rolling pipeline. So I can tell you exactly how much business we're opening, we're creating, opening, and closing within 90 days ongoing. And, and for us, that's enabled us to improve our pipeline, enabled us to improve the engagement from the customer side, but also improve the net result of how much business we're actually able to book and close. And it, it's reduced the sales cycle timeframe because we're thinking about it in that way. But you know, when you think about the little thing too, as a leader, um, it's not just about, here's what you must do and do it like Anthony. I mean, John, you and I were talking, I think you and I both speak Jersey. Not everybody speaks Jersey. It's a, it's a, some would argue it's a dialect of English. I think it's a whole separate language. It's, it's, a, whole nother, it's a whole nother language. Andy. Whole nother language, right? So we, we, I think you and I got along from the get-go because we understood that. But not everybody does. But And all kidding aside, the way I think about it with people too is you identify the little thing that's going to help them become a best version of themselves. And that might not be speaking the way that you or I would speak but they're engaging in the way that's appropriate to them. And as a sales leader, as a field leader, you have to really, really know your people 
Uh, and you have to be able to lead with credibility and respect so that your people open up and they can emerge as the best version of themselves and use their interpersonal magic and use their interpersonal style. But you can't get to helping someone to emerge as, as, a, as an individual contributor or as a first or second or third, whatever line leader, unless you're focusing on the little thing that you need to do and then giving them some room and coaching to help them enable, uh, help them emerge in that framework, in that message. Yeah, I love that. I've, a couple things in there. One, yeah. you're really forcing them to take a look at each of these different touch points and constantly like customize it back to the customer. Which Absolutely. Is really powerful. And the second thing I took is if you really do this well over a really long period of time, you actually start to gather some really great process analytics where you know exactly what works and what doesn't work on each one of these different touch points. I thought that Absolutely. was And then that relates not only from a sales perspective, but that relates into your marketing and what you're doing with your MQLs and your, and your, your leads in general, because you're understanding where, what's clicking with the customer. Sometimes it's what we think. Sometimes it's a little bit of something else, but you, that's, that's where you're getting those signals. And then in your marketing efforts, you can know what is helping a customer conclude, Hey, this is something I want to take a look into. So it's not just sales productivity becomes operational productivity for the whole cycle. And then that thing too, you translate that and you think about what are the, what are the leading indicators and little things that are happening on an implementation side that are yielding success. Cause my focus and thought is not, I don't want to win that renewal in month seven or eight. I want to win that renewal in month three or four and better yet. I want to be talking with the second or third groups so we can do upsells in month three or four. So I'm impacting that dollar retention within the first you know, six, eight months, not just, you know, when the renewals up or 18 months later after they're stable and happy. So, but you have to have like a, the mindset around leading your people, looking at the little things, but then looking at the little things that are happening on the customer side as well. I only want to have you clarify one thing originally sure. talking about how the customer started to move after 11 touch points. Yeah. yeah. In the example that you gave on pipeline generation, you talked about 21 touch points in 21 days. Can you just, you know, help educate me as to why sure. there's transparency between what you um, said was 11 and 21? A couple of reasons. I think number one, part of the data point was even on what the experience that I have and the experience I'm having when people are reaching out to me to bring a new product to market for the SDRs or for sales or for post sales or demand marketing, whatever the case but I've looked at a couple of solutions I've engaged and I'm on the phone with them. I was literally on the phone one time with one of my leaders and uh, I got a cold call the number. had called me like three or four times in a row. So they'd done the double, triple tap type of thing. I'm like, okay, I got it. This person keeps calling. I got to give them some respect on it. So it was someone calling saying, Hey, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get this meeting set up. And long story short, we wound up taking some action and we wound up engaging with that company. But we on the phone, I said, okay, hold on. I put it on speaker. I went with my my uh, my leader who was on the phone with me. I said, "Let's let's look at when we first called. You guys first called. I said, "Send me something." You sent the email. You sent it. Replied. Your manager came back in and replied again. You sent me something on LinkedIn. You sent me a couple LinkedIn. You kept calling me, and that was where I think we had eleven or thirteen for me personally. And this was something I was moderately interested in. I, they called me and I genuinely said, hey, send me some info on this. I'll take a look at it with my people. So it took them to actually set the real meeting up. It took them 13 tries with something I was moderately interested in. Gotcha. We look at the audience and say, hey, you're going to someone who 
maybe, you know, for me, I have a little bit of uh, respect for the game. If someone's going to be reaching out, right. We've, we've, we've done that. You have that, you either succeed or you don't that binary development pipeline development process, that binary kind of you, you win, you lose. Right. So I always have a special place uh, in my heart for people who are in the game. So, and I'm looking at it, but not everybody does, especially when selling to a technical, a technical audience who's not really, who hasn't grown up on that and may not think along those lines. So it, with that in mind, we know that it has to go to more touch points for someone who's not thinking like that. The other piece though, too, that why we went to 21 was because I think in the market today, it's not just about showing what your product can do. We're talking about customer metrics. We're talking about why this can be relevant for them, at least from the hypothesis you can generate from the outside. You have to show personality. You have to show a way to stand out. And obviously you don't want to do anything that's inappropriate, but there are a lot of ways to show some personality and a lot of ways to reach out, especially if you're reaching out to the same person 21 times. So you have to be compelling and to the person, but you have to also be able to be a little bit vulnerable where you're showing them you're a person, not just, you know, not just, uh, they're not just a number that you're going after, you know, you're reaching out to them in a different way. So that 21 touch points gives, gives the, the sales team, the SDR team, whoever's calling, an opportunity to show some some of that person and be human to them. And I think at the end of the day, people people are on uh, they're on uh, digital overload, they're on attention overload, and they, they you know for something that stands out that's unique, then it it opens them up a little bit. You know, it makes them willing to listen and uh, and have a legitimate conversation around what the value potentially can be. Yeah. So along those lines, I've also heard you talk about the deltas. Yeah. Identify and teach people, you know, a new skill or knowledge area. So this is pretty much along the same lines that you're just talking about. But now this is for helping to teach people different things. Can you walk us through how you do that? Absolutely. Yeah, we were talking, you know, we had a we had a QBR not too long ago. So I'll share with you a little bit of the story here. So we've uh, I mentioned earlier so we're talking about doing ROIs across the board, and it's early on in the cycle. In as much as even in the first meeting, uh, I've created some narratives where we're on the first, second slide, and we're doing an ROI on the fly for the customer. So on the sales side, and most of the time on the sales side, uh, people have some idea of that, um, but it doesn't always happen that way. So uh, meaning that the company may be at a point where they haven't needed to do ROI. And they, they haven't identified it. So two kind of thoughts along this, this idea on identifying the Delta. <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of times at a company, it's, you, you know, for me, I, I may be involved and I'll say, hey, well, let me identify the thing and then how to do the thing better. ROI being an example. How to do it better. There's an ROI model, but let's tweak it. Let's talk about how we talk about it differently. Let's talk about how we present it. Let's talk about where and how it becomes valuable for the customer. Some cases... That thing, the ROI, isn't there. So you're talking about bringing in a new thing, doing an ROI with the customer on the fly or doing an ROI or having an ROI conversation that's very foreign to people. And sometimes as a, as a leader, you know, I, I had hair when I first started doing this. Anybody who knows me knows I haven't had hair for a long time. So it's been quite a few years, right? So, um, but there's a delta between what naturally uh, some people have been doing this for a while might think about uh, and how they approach that conversation and how they don't. So a specific example, we're in a QBR and we're talking about the ROI and, and doing it. 
one of one of the people on the team who's actually a great person, by the way. So uh, he said, hey, I, I don't know that our ROI model is actually going to work for this customer. I said, really? Okay, well, why? Well, I don't think it's going to make sense for their their business. I'm like, okay, well, we can tweak the model. That's fine. But um, did you have a conversation? Well, um, I didn't have the conversation. Well, you, So you didn't bring the model to them? No, I didn't bring the model. To them. Okay, but you think it won't resonate with them. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, yeah, it won't resonate. I know it won't work. Okay, so give me a little background on the customer. We stopped. Let's do a role play now. We went into the conversation. I said, let's go through this. How the, I understand the customer. I'll be you. You be the customer. So I started going through the conversation. We have the ROI model up on the screen. And it quickly realized that while it didn't work, it was a different conversation to try to have. So we had more of an inquisitive business conversation about what's important to them, tying back what we do to how it can help the business. This was a company where the real-time nature of their technology is super important. So obviously it working, functioning, performing well, scaling well, being accessible for people, uh, being able to be accessible and, and work in the way to use it is critically important. So we're like a critical component of this. But the delta was that the person wasn't really comfortable in the ROI model. But if you take a step back, the concept of having a business conversation, an inquisitive business conversation about their business and digging into the ROI was foreign. And the person's a great person, but he's earlier in career and identified as the leadership team. And I talked about it. It's a huge delta because they haven't done it. It's a new right. thing. for them. So, so when we're thinking about, especially folks who are earlier in career, we're trying to look at where they may be, where we want to go, but then identifying the deltas about the deltas around the skill, experience, exposure, history, and, uh, and comfortable comfort level in those things. So then you can coach them. So we did the role play. I used some of my words or my words, the right ones, the wrong ones. I don't know, but you know, that's, that's the way you can kind of get someone comfortable and build that muscle up so that you're, you can, you can help them drive the outcome that they want. But it's not just a matter of saying, do the ROI. It's not a matter of saying, here's the ROI model. It's not a matter of saying, here's how to have the conversation. It's a matter of going into and understanding where they're coming from and the Delta from where some of us might be. And then having to, helping to translate that, you know, yeah. and that. I think it's, it's uh, it goes back to your little things and, and big, big things, little in the sense that you have to first understand where they're coming from. What is the Delta? And then. You can't give them 10 things to do because they just, you know, no one can really do that. Right. You have to give them one thing at a time. Like a good coach will give you like one thing to work on at a time until you master that and then take you to the next thing to master that. You know, it's like a, a golf swing. Like I'm terrible at golf, but I mean, if, if I went to a coach and they said, all right, here's how you grip the club, keep your left arm straight, turn, keep your head down, turn your hips, <laughs> hit the ball. And they, and if I was doing it wrong and they thought that I, there's some, something, there must be something wrong with me because this person is supposed to be the coach. That's absolutely. Things to do, thinking that I can do it on day one and I can't. So that's the same thing that you're talking about is figure out what the Delta is and then concentrate on the little thing that could be really big to this person and get them motivated by getting that one little thing in their DNA and then moving on to the next little thing that can you, you can put in their DNA until they can actually pull this off. That's exact. That's a great analogy, John. I love it. And I think that's such a great example because 
uh, when we talk about these little things, it's the little things that build up and get you to where either you want to go or the business can help you to go. And uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but you know, a good leader where I'm, when I work with my leaders, I'm always saying, okay, I'm always thinking about what are the three things you can help this person with over this next month or two months or whatever the case might be. Because when you focus on those little things, then you're developing organizationally habits and the habits are the small things and decisions you make every day, which yield to the big outcome. We just were talking about this concept in a recent QBR because as a team, we need to build a bunch of new habits to yield the right results. And we built a ton of them and had the result for the quarter that we were all looking for. And when you can smart start those small habits, like getting your grip straight to your point, you know, then you can work on the other elements if you have that one down. And uh, you can't get to helping people develop good habits unless you're looking at the little things that yield. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot of different concepts around, I think, breaking it down into small steps. But the way I think about it is you develop these habits. They're fundamental. And then those little habits lead to big material change and, uh, and, and help people get to where you, they want to go or their aspirations are, are, are to take that. You know? Right. Cause once you help them win and you took them through 10 different steps to get there and they now have it in their DNA and they're now winning, they're never going to leave you because they know that now you can get them, you know, to the next level and the next level. Right. Absolutely. And then, then, then you think about it too, as a leader, you, you help people develop and become something that they wanted to, or that uh, they didn't even know they could become. And then you can have a chance to promote them and help them grow. And, uh, and you have an opportunity to develop a legacy. And I think, you know, it's great to be talking with you about it, John, because you have a pretty significant legacy across software with people, you know, including myself who have had help for whom you've helped develop really good habits that have yielded, you know, some great career opportunities and to be able to, help people to develop that, those habits that then they just build on and build on and build. It's, it's a really, it's a really rewarding and fun thing to do. Right. It is rewarding. You have to take joy in it as a coach or a leader to help someone else develop so that they can be successful without you. And that's, that's really your job as a leader. Uh, that's, it's, it's, yeah, it's so good. That's how I think about, yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah. No, I was, I was going to take your, um, ROI example. And sure. I've also heard you speak a little bit about compelled energy and creating, you know, urgency with the customer. So in this, let's say, tougher selling environment yeah. due to the uncertain economy that we're in, you know, many customers have a, you know, wait and see attitude and they prefer not to spend big right now. Right. So talk about, you know, compelled energy and how you're compelling customers to move now yeah so we we actually uh we, we've done a lot of and this is a, over the past you know period of time here past year year and a half type of thing we've done a lot of uh analysis on what was happening at first meetings and that first meeting conversion so uh in terms of of looking first meetings that went really really fast the cycle went fast and closed and then we look at first meetings that either you know, ultimately will result in a closed dead or just didn't, didn't happen, you know, just lost to do nothing to your point. The big Delta was an approach we were taking in that first meeting. So I, I kind of spent some time and I sat back and said, okay, well, what is this really about? And this is where I came up with the term that we call compelled energy. And I'll define it for you because there's some components to it, but 
Um, and I'll define it and then we can talk a little bit about how to drive it. But compelled energy, by definition, I'm reading it here, the engagement, emotional and logical, of the audience to take priority action in an urgent, specific, and outcome-focused way. And then we go further and define it to say it's typically caused by direct, respectful, but problem, uh, direct, respectful, clear, but problem-centered communication, demonstrated, articulated, relevant customer examples and ROI, painted picture of the possible with the confidence of a low-risk approach. And then we net it out by saying, when compelled energy is present, life is good, transaction moves fast. When compelled energy is not present, everything is slow and difficult, and the transaction will likely die. So we, we define that, and now we define it, and we actually made it stage one in our sales process. Because when we looked at this, we literally looked at some of the transactions we won, and I'm talking about million dollar plus TCV contracts, 300 plus K um, for ACV for first year. And uh, we've done transaction cycles that weren't 90 days, that weren't 60, that weren't 30. We did one that was 13 business days but it, of, of a million dollar TCV, but it was because of that compelled energy. So the term is a different way of thinking about engaging with the audience. And when you're approaching things with compelled energy, what does that mean? That means there's a lot of things you do going into that conversation. If you're going to have a problem-centered communication, that means you have to research the account. It means you have to understand what they're doing, know your technology really well, have been trained on. And you're developing hypotheses going into that meeting. And it means you're going to that meeting with conclusions that you're, you know the customer will need to draw on their own in a good way in order for the deal to go fast. And you're building your agenda, you're building your talk track, your, your story around how to drive those conclusions. And then we, we take that, that step further and we list out a bunch of other prerequisites going into the meeting. And then we have very, very specific exit criteria leading stage one. And then they follow through the subsequent stages as well. But if we can drive that compelled energy early on, then we know that we're having a lot of fun. The cycle is going to go really fast and the customer is going to be really excited because why we're playing to the differentiators that we have the technology we're playing in our game. We're playing in the use cases we can solve. We're playing in the requirements and functionality that we know that the EB will ultimately define and ultimately agree to say, this is a problem that we need to solve now. And you want the EB to say, I'm pissed at you. Why are you pissed? I'm pissed that I knew, but I didn't know about this thing. And you're just bringing it to me now. And I'm also pissed that we didn't solve it yet, but okay, go get it done. Yes. You've got amazing compelled energy and we can talk about the EB that's changed even too, but uh, well, anyway, let's stay on compelled on. energy yeah. and break it down a little bit. Cause you went yeah. kind of fast. So I was trying to yeah. remember everything that you said. First thing was you came in with some sort of an emotional and logical statement. I think yes. a problem, problem statement, correct? So let's yeah, I want to break down the components for the audience. So that absolutely. was the first thing you come in with. Yes. And then a problem-centric viewpoint, meaning you're developing a point of view of the customer's issue as you potentially see it based upon all the homework that you've done yeah. on the account, correct? Before you yeah. go into the meeting, right? Yes, yeah. And then the third piece I heard you say is you're prepared with powerful before and after customer success stories, right? Absolutely. Saying, you're not the only customer that we've dealt with that has this same exact issue. Here was company A, here was company B, here was the before scenario, similar to yours. 
And here's the after scenario with very compelling metrics, right? And then the last piece, which is what, what I think you have to do these days is now from that information you gather in that meeting, start to put together a powerful ROI. And it can get you to those numbers quicker if you're really talking about and really nailed um, you know, the problem statement or the problem-centric point of view. That, Absolutely. That summarizes it pretty well. I think you summarized it well, John. I, I want to make a couple comments on it, if you don't mind. Um, the, 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 the components of MedPIC are in the problem statement. So this is a way of thinking about what's happening with the pain in the organization, why these metrics are important, uh, a way of giving the champion something that he or she is going to then be able to really get ready to go fight for because we know that it absolutely is a fucking fight today to get a dollar out period end of story. So this is, this is a, this is a way of bringing these things to the forefront. And I think the other component thought I'm what you're trying to do there, let me stop you. What you're trying yeah. to do there is create, you're creating urgency with the customer. You basically tell them, look, you got a, you got a problem. It's a pretty big problem. Other exactly. companies have had the same problem and we just hit on it and we can solve it with our differentiation in our product because we've done it for other companies, you know, maybe it's time to move. Well said, John. Well said. Well said. And, and I think when, in my experience, you know, if you think about, I know you've, you've talked a lot about champions, but if you think about a champion development, we talk about identifying building and testing champions, three different distinct areas. But if you're going into, a, and even if the person's not a champion, they're, they're, you know, you have to start with a coach, right? So, so if you're going to someone saying, Hey, I, I have some ideas on where this could go. And by the way, I don't know if I'm 50% right, 30%, 80%. The point is not me being necessarily right. The point is me identifying how we might be able to solve a problem that is worth solving for you now. And if you're approaching the customer in, in such a way where you're talking about a problem statement to them, that gives them an opportunity to then edit the problem statement. It's so much easier to edit and critique than it is to look at a blank piece of paper and start from scratch. So if you're, you're coming into the customer saying, Hey, here's what I'm thinking. The customer very easily can shift to a, Hey, that's pretty good, but tweak this, tweak this, tweak this. It adds automatic credibility. You're never going to be able to build a champion and you're never going to get even a lot of support from a coach if you don't have that credibility. And this is a very, very specific and simple way to establish that credibility from the get-go. And that because you're coming to them saying, hey, this is a business problem that we can solve. It may have a lot of impact on you and your role, but it is tied to what's happening in the organization. It's something worth solving now. So I'm not asking you to take a look at the technology because I think it's good or because everybody else thinks it's good. I think it's good in the context of your business at this time. That's back to the context and everything's contextual and temporal. So I think it gives a lot there. And that 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 if you're articulating in a problem statement way, then that is how EBs are looking at things. What's happening? Why didn't I know about it? Is it affecting business? Yes. If the answer is, if you can't articulate that in a problem center way, the CFO or the CEO, the EB is one of that period in the story. I don't care how big the company is today, in my opinion. I would argue that all day long. But if you can't, they, they think in terms of problems. Right. They think in terms of criticality of problems. If you're thinking you're starting your sales cycle in terms of defining problems, then 
the rest of the cycle will go because you don't need to translate as much later. You're, you're locked into that. You're linked into that problem to start. Right. So a couple of things I want to talk yeah. about. One is you mentioned the CFO and they're getting involved in a lot of these bigger deals right now. And they're going to, the first question they're going to ask is why do we have to have this? And then they're going to ask, why do we have to have it now? And then they're going to ask, why do we have to buy so much of it now? So if you're not prepared, as you described, Anthony, then your deal is either going to get chopped down or your deal is going to go away or it's going to get delayed. So this is another reason why you have to be so good at developing this compelled energy to get to a get to an ROI. The second point that you hit on, um, but I just want to make it you know really clear is that yeah. this really differentiates you as a salesperson. You're not like walking in the door never did any homework on the company or the persona you're calling on or the use case you've already done your homework and you're now completely differentiating yourself from the competition so when a competition comes in the door and they're they don't have any point of view and they're just trying to do initial discovery they're they're yards behind you in this type of thing exactly john yeah yeah, and you still have to, you know, if you drive that compelled energy, one of the number one outputs of this, and I think you and I may have talked about this before, cell phone, WhatsApp, talking with the prospect within 12 hours of that first meeting, ideally same day. If you have a cell phone dialogue or text dialogue or WhatsApp communication going within that, after that first meeting, you're in great shape because why? Then you're, you're operating in a peer-to-peer relationship. And you've got an opportunity to fill in all the other gaps. You know, people don't buy today. It's not an environment where you're, I don't think in most cases, you're going to buy tons and tons of credibility by having really good questions. You'll, you'll add your credibility, you'll add to your enhance your credibility when you think through what they can encounter later in the cycle. But I think most buyers are more interested in cutting to it. How can you help me now? What's going on? And you come to them in that way, you build that credibility, then you fill in everything else. And you're, you're working from them in a, with them in a position, hey, let me, we're going to help you with the conversation you're going to need to have. I know you're going to need to talk to the EP. Let me give you some, some experience for what we've had. Let me write this first version of the deck for you so you can then have this and you can have the narrative. Because the narrative might be walking on the way to the cafeteria. <laughs> hey, what's going on? Okay, I get it. Good. How much does it cost you get a budget? Okay, good. It might be that simple. Or it might be a three-hour presentation to an architecture review board right. or CIO executive council or, you know, an external vendor worth. So you have to be, you have to be able to create that from, uh, from the get go. Now tell me, you may also mention that at the end of this, you know, meeting, you want to have an exit criteria. What is the exit criteria you're asking your people to come out of the meeting with? Sure. Cell phone, WhatsApp for person driving the dialogue. You've got a drafted and agreed to in writing problem statement. I'm reading it from you specifically here to give you one. Confirmation or hypothesis of what you've identified in stage one. Confirmation on the hypothesis. Initial ROI drafted by us and shared with the customer. Now on that ROI, by the way, I'm not saying the ROI out of that first meeting. I'm saying the ROI in the first meeting. So we could literally do ROI on the fly because most of the variables, we can use industry variables and say, you have how many people listen Okay, make some assumptions. Great. For your environment, rough and tough, here's what I'm thinking. Customer, and say, is this a problem we're solving now? That's a very clear way for the customer to gain some comfort to say, this is something that's worth solving. But also, all right, I need to, might, I might have to sign up for this, but it's a way, if the problem is that big, 
okay, like I know I've got something to focus on here. So on that point, Anthony, are your people yeah. back of the napkin calculation in the meeting or they do they actually have like a, a worksheet or a spreadsheet that they pull up and they put up on the screen and they can punch in numbers live with the customer? The latter. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah we have it in the meeting. And not everybody back to the, you know, do you have to do it that way? No, we don't have to do it in the meeting that way. And depending on the audience, some people a little more standoffish. Some people might be really engaged and say, hey, you have an ROI model? Great. You want to go through it now? Sure, let's do it. So you because we sensitize a bunch of different things, uh, but you can do high level back in the napkin. But we have the model ready to go. And then we have the output uh, in a PowerPoint ready to go too. that we can put it into, you know, customer consumable. So they have the whole story to tell in there too. But, uh, but both. We have, depending on, you don't have to have it in that first meeting, but leaving compelled energy stage, you have to have gone through that ROI with the customer because their customer is going to want to know pricing too. We can't do any pricing without the ROI model. I'm not, you can't do, uh, ROI needs to happen before the pricing or at least in concert with the pricing. What I also like about it is you're driving the agenda. You're driving the demo. Like how many times have you walked into a meeting and a customer says, just give me a demo of the product. And I used, I used to ask, well, do you have five hours? And they'd say, no, <laughs> go, well, that's how long it would take us to demo all the features in the product. Right. Yeah. Because you, know, yeah. you have to push back and come back with, you know, I know your use case and here I'm here to basically ask you a couple questions to make sure that we're on the same use case and the issues in that use case. And then I give you a demo that's tailored to that, right? Absolutely. I'm, not, I'm not walking in where I'm just gonna demo the product. Right. That's yeah. not gonna get you anywhere. No, I, you, absolutely, John. And you know, for us too, the variability in the customer environment is huge too, right? Based on, are they trying to focus on cost? Are they trying to focus on, for us, 100% regression testing where they're bringing testing into the process that's more about quality? Are they focused on, replacing a, uh, an existing open source framework or they're focused on replacing another tool. A lot of different use cases, great. We have a great business case on any of them, but where you lean is really a function of, of making sure you're, you're aligned with what the customer's environment is. And that's why you, you lead with the problem statement. You do your homework going into the meeting that have that habit of doing that, putting together the conclusions that you were expecting the customer to draw coming out of that first meeting, whether it's two or five, you go in that meeting, you got five, we went four for five. That's a great meeting. We're already scheduled on our next setup. Uh, but if you go in, you have one out of five. Okay. We need to redo or we got to figure out somebody else in the environment. Right. So what I also hear you say, Anthony, I'm just imagining this, um, this meeting with, with, and you're doing a demonstration, but it's a, it's very, pertinent to the use case and your differentiators. So now mate, and you want to come out with that, or you have that ROI or preliminary ROI you built before the meeting. Right. Now you, your people are showing the product specific to that use case and the problem statement. They show a differentiator that solves that problem and they have to stop the demo right there and ask, how much does that cost you today? Or how does that affect you today? Cause they have to get quantifiable metrics down to dollars so that you or down to people in time or however it is that you're going to calculate back two dollars so you can put it in the roi and change you know your preliminary roi to almost the final you know roi in the meeting so you have to constantly stop that demo and, and get agreement that this is a problem and here's we can solve it and how much is that costing you to do that today absolutely 
Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and where we take it too, John, even it, is this not only stopping it, validating, ensuring that we're well aligned, but a big thing today, I think it's probably always been a thing, but, but even more important today because of the pace of innovation, the pace of change, and the pace at which customers move uh, is documented. So we're constantly focused, and actually stage two for us is documenting the fit and gaining consensus, but it's literally documenting and sharing with the customer. And you know, one of the things we focus on too is that the things that we're documenting are not exclusively internal to us. We're documenting things that are customer facing. Our customer notes, our, our presentations are the version to us, the version to the customer, they're one and the same. So, cause it has to be documented, quantified, specific, measurable as on the metrics you're talking about, but it has to be documented. And that's a big thing. I think that if you have that habit of documenting that, then the customers looking for that documentation are thinking along the same lines. I think the other thing this does for the sales force is smokes out the people that are in front of them. Like who's, who are the people that are really in the know? They know the numbers, they know the process, they know how it affects the business at a very high level. Because if you want to do a million dollar deal, it's got to affect those things we talked about before, you know, time to market, customer satisfaction, revenue, profitability, risk, and, and, very quickly when you're having these discussions, you decide, you can quickly determine of the five or six people that are in the room, who's in the know and who's not in the know. So you can almost find your potential champion right there. Right on. Yeah, absolutely. Because the question too, we, we often answer or well, we pose is, hey, you're our, based on your environment, your ROI is 1.5, 1.3, 2.3, whatever the number. Is that a problem worth solving now? Silence. You got a couple ways you can reply. Sounds good. Let's do it. In which case, okay, depending if it's the right person you've identified, it, maybe that's the flies. Or they can say, well, walk me through the model. Great conversation. Or they can say, well, that's good for other companies, but doesn't apply to us. Well, let's look at the model. And you're, you can very quickly determine, is this a person who's willing to go and stick their, their, you know, stick their hand in the air and say, hey, I've got something to fix here. Or are they someone who's looking to go like this? And, you know, either you've got a potential champion or at least a strong coach, or you have someone who's not going to be, be able to be there. And, uh, you know, you can question the model. You can validate whether it works for you. You can look at the technology and make sure the model can yield, the technology will yield those results. Beautiful conversation. But if a person doesn't have some way of saying the problem is, the okay, like you know, some level of engagement, right. you know, you're going to flush it out as exactly as you said, John. Cool. Great. That's fantastic, Anthony. Okay. I want to ask you a couple more questions before sure. uh, we tidy up here. So you're the new CRO, or even in some cases, you know, the new first line manager, but for you, yeah. it's, you know, it's a CRO, but I'm thinking about our audience. Sure. It's you're brand new to the company. It's the beginning of the quarter. You need to forecast the number for the quarter. And you don't know your people yet. And yeah. you and I know that we have some people that wear rose-colored glasses all the time <laughs> and some people that sandbag on purpose, right? So yes. you're qualifying the forecasts that are being presented to you. So what information is Anthony Palladino looking for or what indicators are you looking for so that you could feel like, okay, I could put together a halfway decent, accurate forecast here? Yeah, I think you'll, you'll probably smile. The first question is, who's the champion? 
who do we think is the champion, right? And and it's probably who do we think is the champion because an understanding if if I'm if you're new to the organization, there's probably not a firm notion of what a champion is. And you know the definition we have is a person with political respect and or technical authority who fights for us and we're not there. And I have the and or in there, John, because I think in a lot of cases with consensus or in environments those two things are very distinct today. In some cases today. So, but who do we think the champion is? And then, uh, you know, you can ask that question and get an idea of who the role is. And based on the role, they'll give you some idea, but then who's the EB? EB, person with discretionary use of funds. And, you know, if you're on a coach level, uh, a director level, and they're saying the EB is the senior director, we know it's a big shop, even a small shop. Okay, we've got a completely, well, complete problem with the definitions and we're, we're approaching the, maybe the right people, but in the wrong way. And we're not approaching the, the other people we need to engage. Right. So, so that's the, uh, that's the number one thing that I always look at uh, in the individual transaction. Uh, and then I find that um, reorient, reorienting to champion based mentality, champion based selling process is the most critical thing because everything else is built on that for me. Uh, a champion is implicit and so many other things are, are implicit in the champion, right? So, um, and that's a, if you have a good habit of understanding that and, uh, and understanding who that champion could be, being really honest, and defending that position. That's the number one thing. Let's look at, so. Yeah. Cause it can unravel pretty quickly just based upon that, those two questions. <laughs> Real, you- right. Yeah, then you have, or you have, hey, we've got a great business case and I've got all these POC criteria. They love us and the guy's going to quit if we don't get the technology. Man, I, you know, that's, I learned these, I learned some of those. I made, I don't know if it's a million or two million mistakes, but a lot of them I've made mostly myself, you know? So, and that's a big one, right? Having, having someone who's an awesome coach or maybe a good coach, but the EB doesn't care what the person thinks about, right? That's right. a, that's a hard reality, but it's, it's the truth. And uh, so that's the first thing, yeah. the champion. One more question. So a lot of people want to be the CRO. This is like your third time being the CRO, but yeah. very few people understand the true challenges of the job. A lot of times people that work for me would get into the job and all of a sudden call me and go, I had no idea this is what the job was about. Yeah. But what do you wish you knew, you know, something that you know now, one or two things that you know now that you wish you knew when you first became CRO. Uh, I think one of the things that's really, really important, number one, is um, hiring well. So being able to recruit and hiring well is not just hiring people who maybe have a great track record. It's hiring people who have the right DNA, the right intelligence the right habits, they've got the right actions uh, in place, they've got the right rhythm, they're also moldable and coachable in the right way. So that, because if you join a company, if you're moving in a company where you're 50 million, a little different scope from two or 3 million, 50 million versus 200 million, very different operating rhythm in the day-to-day activities that your sales people are going to do, your CS people, your pre-sales, even your SDRs, right? There's a very different thing. So that's the first piece I think is being able to identify the right people for the job at that time in that company, in that environment. And there's also, you know, there's a, depending on whether it's PLG or the enterprise, 
a lot of different types of ways that people can operate and be successful. But, you know, I mean, there are people who have been worked with me for many years and sometimes they're not, they're not the right fit at the next company, you know, uh, but sometimes depending on two or three companies down the road, they fit in great. Right. So awesome people, but just different DNA and it has to be the right DNA for the time. I think that's the first thing. Not only the company, but also the stage of the company. Like you said, they might be good yeah. at 50 million, but they're not good at 200 million. Yeah. yeah. Especially today too. Right. I mean, you know, you take someone who's, uh, who's had a history of large companies overachieving four-year stints in multiple companies, but the companies are ever post-IPO, uh, very different operating rhythm from a company that's you know, 5 million or 20, even 30, 50 million, right? Because you're not, you're not dealing with the fine market. Your variables are not you know, plus or minus 20%. It's figuring out who your market is. It's deconstructing what good looks like and then being able to create the process you're prospecting a lot more and being creative. It's not just executing, it's creative and figuring out as you go along. So that's that scale of, of the talent is a really, really important one. Yeah. yeah. I think- Oh, you've yeah. got another one? Yeah, I was gonna say the other one is, I think if you're, you know, you're in that, um, uh, I think the other one is probably one that I think about from Lencioni, you know, of uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team and he's got a couple of other books, but it's about, having building a leadership team that's with you you know and and having the creating an environment where your peers have each other and they have you and uh and because because you're doing heavy lifting doing a lot of work and you know there's a lot of change you're probably going to be driving uh you're going to be what you may do today is going to change in two days from now but and that's hard change can be hard so i think establishing a leadership team that is with each other they're supporting each other with each other you're sharing that common common goal to the mission and uh but doing it you know as people and and really creating that that's that's i think a, it doesn't come easy because you have to create that special relationship and have credibility and respect from all of your people but there's i can't underscore enough i think how important it is as a leader who either moves into a new shop or who is building you know moving up to build a, run a bigger operation how important that relationship is with the people uh, so. Yeah, you can feel that when you have it. It's it's a real team, and then single focus for everyone on the team, and it 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 feels also selfless. There's yeah. no selfishness on the team, right? Yeah, because everybody's out for the same goals, so everybody's helping each other out. And like you said, it's really difficult to get that, but when you have it, you can feel it and, and everybody else needs to look out when you have it, right, Anthony? So Yeah, that's that's the way I think about it, for sure. Yeah. Well, Anthony, this has been fantastic. From one New Jersey guy to another New Jersey guy, <laughs> thank you so much for spending time with us. John, I've enjoyed it. It's great spending the time with you today. I look forward to uh, rolling up sleeves on a couple more things. Thanks, Anthony, and thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.